Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. This trailer for, for uh, Die Hard 2. Die Hard 2. Die Harder. The thing is, of the trailer, Andy, I think you can say once we and, and I'm going to go ahead and and I'll do your part. 
well, this is a 90s action trailer, so you kind of have to give it what it is, right? That's kind of your thing, is to remind me that it's a 90s action trailer. <laughs> and and so I'll take that as table stakes, and then I will say to you, Andy, I will say, it's actually not that bad. I can agree with you, but also at the same time, <laughs> I mean, there are. this is one of those things where I see things giving getting given away in the trailer that are big moments. And this is one of those things, like when we were talking about uh, Star Trek First Contact and the reveal of the Borg Queen, kind of her body being put back together and all that sort of stuff. You know, th- there's there are big beats that that get spoiled in the trailer, and I can see the same discussion happening with the studio here, saying, "Well, we've got to show the big, you know, the plane blowing up as it's taking off because that's a big moment. We've got to show the stuntman jumping out of the helicopter onto the wing of the plane while it's flying. That's a big moment." Because they show all of that in the trailer and their big beats and their key plot points, especially in the climax, that essentially get spoiled by having them in here. Now, it's contextually, you don't really know that, but, you know, it's, I mean, these are those moments that people see in a trailer and then they're sitting around expecting to happen. And if they're, you know, savvy trailer viewers like us, they're waiting for it and they know, okay, well, it hasn't happened yet. It must be the big climax. So I think they give away an awful lot in this trailer. And I, you know, I mean, we talked about it with Star Trek. We talked about it here. I mean, this is that era where they, you know, the studio is like, you know what, if it's going to get more butts in seats because people see a big blow up, then we're going to put it in the trailer. And that's, you know, that's kind of where we are. I, you know, I agree. I, I've been trying to put myself in the headspace of uh, explosions being generic. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's stuff blowing up. Right. <laughs> and so I, I kind of get that that's what's going to happen. There's going to be big fireballs and there's going to be crazy stuff. I, I'm not crazy about the, you know, some of the big comedy moments, the, the moments that tried to be funny, the, the ejector seat moment, um, you know, the, it'll, <laughs> it blew, last time it blew you through the back wall of the theater this time. It'll blow you sky high. I don't like that moment. That is a groaner of a moment. Uh, But what it does do, I I really want to celebrate what it does right. And what it does right is present a strong what if case for us. What if a major airport was taken over by terrorists during the holidays? What would happen? Let's just let's pose that as something to think about. And we're going to show you some images that that tell you we've explored that and it's going to be in this movie. And, uh, you know, in that regard, I walk away from this trailer thinking, okay, it's a guy I like, John McClane. I know I like him because I saw the first movie and it's a context that that is compelling uh, because everybody knows the troubles of holiday travel. What if they were further, um, you know, thrown asunder uh, by you know, this external force. What if I, I would like to see that movie? So in that regard, uh, I actually think the trailer was cut together pretty well. Um, the other stuff, the giving away the major effects beats, I, I you know, I, I, I guess, yeah, I fault the studios and the trailer cutters. And it, it's just a um, that they I feel like they don't feel their story itself is strong enough to get people in the seat. So they want to show the very biggest and the baddest moments. And it's just a shame. I feel sorry for them that they have that experience, that they feel like they need to do that. It is more of a pitiful feeling uh, that I get when I watch those now. But I think in terms of just presenting the story, I think they did a pretty good job. No, I I agree. I mean, they do present the story itself well. We get a good sense of what the story is going to be here. To that end, I I also um, thought that the teaser was pretty effective. I actually really liked the way that the teaser um, is set up where it's just kind of um, the bulk of it is kind of text with audio talking about, you know, 
the what if scenario of it. You know, this is this is the situation of this uh, the this major international airport. This many people come through it every day. This many planes take off every day. This many people work here. All this, and then it, all of a sudden, it comes to a grinding halt. I really liked the way the teaser is set up, and then of course it builds to there's only one man who can save it, and then we reveal John McClane. But I loved the setup for that. I thought it was a very effective way to kind of set up a really great what if scenario, um, which also goes to what we talked about last week with Die Hard. How this is that was a film that turned into this whole. Um, this idea of being able to pitch these, these takeover stories, you know, die hard on a bus, die hard in this case, die hard at an airport. And that's exactly what the, these trailers both present. Exactly right. And, you know, check the show notes for that teaser trailer too, because we'll, we'll put a link to it in there. It is, I, I watched that teaser after I watched the trailer and I, I think I wish somebody was bold enough to say, you know what, this is the te- this is the trailer. We're going to go with this. Oh, this that'd be is, great. That that would be a magnificent trailer for this movie. Not a teaser. This is all you get, and then you're going to go see the movie because it tells you the same thing. It tells you here's this airport. It tells you here are the sounds. It's so driven by this wonderful audio, and uh, and then you see John McClane with a cheeky line that says, "We know exactly what we're doing. You know what we're doing." Uh, how can the same thing happen to the same guy twice? Exactly. It's, it is just perfect. And that's the yeah. only bit of a clip from the film that you get. Perfect. And that's all that's you're right. That's all you really needed to sell the movie. Hallelujah, Andy. Here, here. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock. Christmas Eve. Is there a cop on duty around here? Airport police. Go get him. Jingle bells swing and jingle bells ring. Washington, D.C. International Airport. What's this about? Oh, just a feeling I have. Ouch. When you get those feelings, insurance companies start to go bankrupt. The tower's lost control. Instrument landing system is down. Backup systems won't come up. We've got blizzard conditions. Zero visibility. Attention all controllers. We have a code red alert. There's panic in the air. Professional mercenary. You got the world's biggest drug dealer on his way here now. What do you need, a slide rule to figure this out? You get the hell out of my office before I throw you out of my damn airport. And terror on the ground. Who is this? Who I am is unimportant. What I want is very important. Oh, we are just up to our neck in terrorists again, John. But for police officer John McClane. It's just another Christmas. You're the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. Story of my life. This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're traveling with John McClane this week, stuck at the airport with crappy weather and terrorists. In Rennie Harlan's 1990 film, Die Hard 2. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show and your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you enjoy the show and are interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. You'll get to enjoy our back channel conversations on Slack and listen to the members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. Just head on over to patreon.com slash thenextreel. Is what you expected? No. This is just the beginning. I don't like this movie as much as the first one, Andy. 
But I feel like there's a but there. Yeah, it's pretty much the end. Die Hard is, this is a series where you're really starting at the pinnacle and just kind of, you know, it's it's all like, it's all, you know, up, ups and downs from there, but nothing ever yeah, tops that, but that start. But mostly down. It, well, you know, it's it's got an interesting, um, it's it's an interesting sets of rise and, rises and falls. This actually, I have an awful lot of fun with this movie. I don't really hate this movie. I know some people really just don't like it at all. I think it's just ridiculous fun. It's totally Rennie Harlan. Like this is like Rennie Harlan at his prime. Oh, it is Pete Rennie Harlan. Yeah, it is. And, and, uh, and I actually have a lot of fun with it, despite the fact that, um, I don't like John McClane as much in this one. Um, the story is, is just, you know, a, a, a good example of Hollywood excess, like taking something that succeeded and and doing it more and bigger. And I mean, even the title itself, Die Harder, says everything you really need to know about what they were trying to do with this film. It's just over the top nonsense, but I still have fun with it. The challenge that I have with it is, I, well, I think you said it. I don't like John McClane as much in this one. And I don't think this is, I, I don't think you can say the same thing about the, you know, that we say about the overall arc of Die Hard, that they just kind of get, you know, progressively worse over the course of the entire series that you can about Bruce Willis's portrayal of John McClane. I actually think there are some significant like ups and downs as he gets better and older. And John McClane, in fact, becomes a, an even more interesting character the older he gets. So I, I think that uh, this movie represents a real low in Bruce Willis's portrayal of John McClane as a jerk and, you know, a guy whose humor is undergirded by just rage in a, a film that should be, you know, is otherwise set up as something that is, you know, the second diehard holiday film. Um, right. And, and, and so it's frustrating to me. And I think that is a lot of that puts a lot of weight on the film for me that the that the first movie just doesn't have. Uh, apart from that, I, I just and I, I know we probably spent too much time talking about uh, the book, Roderick Thorpe's book last week, but we've got to talk about Walter Wager's book this week. Uh, it is from a different uh, book series, another uh, com- commercial fiction uh, book uh, called 58 Minutes, uh, starring a uh, principal character who is an expert, um, you know, uh, anti-terrorist task force leader, a captain. Uh, he is the principal liaison between, um, you know, the Fed, uh, the feds and their anti-terrorist efforts and, uh, you know, local police in New York, uh, the airport that is uh, the airports, I should say, that are taken down in the book. They take down Newark, LaGuardia and JFK. Um, and, the the story is much more interesting, uh, you know, from the perspective of the terrorists and the lead terrorist that is uh, actually perpetrating this whole thing and his whole purpose, his reason for being. The concept uh, of 58 Minutes is pretty tightly woven into, um, you know, Die Hard 2 uh, with, you know, some fairly significant changes. The problem, I think, comes that in the book uh, – it, it is very much a team effort <laughs> trying to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, our, our lead detective is, you know, he, he has the resources of everybody that is uh, in the control tower, the, the cab, they call it, that everybody's around there trying to help him, trying to, um, you know, trying to make, you know, make this uh, the, the saving of these airports of their 
all of their primary responsibilities. You don't have any jerk cops. You know, you don't have any any sort of lampoonable uh, public servants that are out there to, you know, just to make fun of, just to be idiots. And the movie is, man, they double down on idiocy. And that's one of the one of my most frustrating things with it is just some of the the levels of idiocy in this. Just it it leaves me uh, questioning a lot about it. Now I understand yeah. if this situation were to happen. Would John McClane, you know, this New York City cop, be the first person they turn to for help? Probably not. So, I mean, I guess I can understand it. But at the same time, it plays pretty uh, roughly at times. Yeah. And and that's why in the book, it actually works very, very well, because this guy is he's already in the airport because he's waiting for his daughter, not his wife. But if this were to happen and he was, wasn't at the airport, there is a reason to believe that he would be the first guy you'd call. If this were to happen, you know what I mean? Like he would be an expert that is on scene. And as it happens, he is he's the guy you need because he knows how all of these systems need to talk to one another. He's not an expert in airport operations. And so but once you put him in this situation, he knows how to deal with a terrorist situation. And that's what makes the book read like a rocket ship. Everything feels believable. Um, and uh, and the movie, um, it just it, it doesn't. Well, and that's one of those um, – we'll certainly talk more about this next week also. One of those questions about these adaptations when they take something like 58 Minutes and and uh, say, hey, let's find a way to shoehorn this into this, this property that we've now created that's successful that happens to be based off this totally different series – let's let's find a way to shoehorn this story into the Die Hard franchise. Sometimes it can work. Sometimes it 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 makes for a little more of a frustrating situation. Um, I, I think there are elements that work, though. Like, I do like the idea of the whole Die Hard at an airport scenario. You know, we've got, you know, these people now trying to figure out how to stop the terrorists at an airport. I do think it's an actually an interesting story, even if there are frustrating elements with John McClane trying to be the one solving every little uh, every little piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And I guess that's something that's also worth talking about with this as far as um the nature of of uh you know a terrorist story terrorists taking over an airport as a summer entertainment film. Um that was certainly something that um John McTiernan had on his mind when he directed the first Die Hard, he really was hesitant about that because he said it's such a, a terrible situation. I don't want to make it into light summer entertainment. And so he had the writers really kind of focus on the the robbery part of the characters in that first film, which I think made it really interesting. Um, here, we really just go whole hog with the terrorist angle and we actually have terrorists and they're you know, freeing this dictator. There's this whole war on cocaine. It's kind of the the writers even acknowledged they were kind of uh, hinting at the Iran Contra, kind of all the stuff going on with the um, uh, South American uh, kind of stuff that we had going on in the 80s. Um, so there's a lot of that that's really kind of uh, put at the forefront here with actual terrorists doing actual terrible things. Um, yet it is summer entertainment. We have, uh, you know, Rennie Harlan here. Uh, he said, you know, this ended up, uh, giving him the 
the title of the uh, the director who killed more people in a in a summer action movie than anyone before him because he has the terrorists take down an entire plane of people. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible terrorist act that these people do. Um, and it is this summer entertainment. Um, and it's an interesting thing that it was like audiences largely were okay with it. And it's, it's, it's one of those things that I think with this particular film, it, it's like, okay, does, does it, is it walking the line? Okay. Or, or does it, is this kind of where maybe things started going off the rails as far as what people viewed as summer entertainment? I'm not quite sure, really. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. And another comparison to the book I I want your take on. They don't do – it's presented a little bit differently in the book. They They don't do the thing where the terrorists take over the landing control and adjust sea level, which I don't understand. It's always seemed a little bit absurd to me. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe, maybe let's just say it can happen the way it is. What happens in the film, we have the terrorists taking an active and direct role in killing, you know, 237 people or however many people are on that plane. Right. Mm -hmm. In the book, they actually, uh, the, the big devastation actually kills more people. It's, it's, you know, planes crashing into one another in the sky but it's as a result of them flying too close to one another, not seeing one another. It's an it's an accidental in air collision that is a result of like running out of fuel and trying to do things, you know, you know, as a result of the terrorist action. So it's like one level removed of terrorist action. Does that soften it a little bit, uh, you know, in, in terms of terrorism as entertainment? Uh, would that have played uh, better in in the movie had they made it more of an accidental, uh, you know, destruction. Well, I, I guess I don't have a huge issue with it. I actually think in context of the story about, I mean, you know, a, a, a story full of gravitas with terrorists taking over the airport. I mean, these are people who do bad things and here they are doing a terrible thing. Right. right? I mean, they and as nonsensical as the whole sea level thing is, because. I mean, I don't know much about planes. I, I, I know that's completely a fabricated thing they came up with for, for the film. But I mean, I, my understanding of airplanes is they have altimeters so that at least is telling them how close they are to sea level. So they, in, in their own plane, they would know, okay, well, we can't see anything, but we know we're at least, you know, 200 feet above sea level. Right. They don't rely on air traffic control to tell them how high in the air they are. That's, <laughs> that's internal. Regardless of that. It still is uh, an interesting element to use to really set up the terrorists in a very evil way. And to that end, I think it's actually very effective, as heartbreaking and awful as it is. Uh, you know, I, I think that the villains in this film seem like real terrorists. And I actually enjoy uh, the uh, the villains quite a bit, Uh you know, despite the fact that I think there might be too many levels of them as far as like the different groups and how they all come together. I, you know, largely I, I do enjoy what William Sadler is doing here as Colonel Stewart. I think his setup at the beginning doing kind of the naked Tai Chi in his hotel room sets up a really interesting villain that I, I feel like at the time I hadn't seen before. And then we get this moment where he actually does this, this terrible terrorist act. And and I find I, I've always found it a very effective moment that actually gives a lot of gravitas to the film. Um, now, I guess the, the question, though, is like, is that gravitas that we needed in a big summer movie? You know, I, 
I don't know if it's, uh, you know, I, I don't know if we're the people to answer that. Uh, you know, for me, it's, it didn't really bring the movie down for me, but I know for some people it might be like too much. It's like, you know, this isn't some heavy, you know, war drama or anything. I just wanted, you know, fun popcorn entertainment. Yeah, I, I hear that. I, I feel like it does point to an interesting choice they made about the narrative of the terrorists. And in the book, the terrorists are mechanistic and driven toward a singular purpose, and anything outside of that purpose is a distraction. And I think that makes them actually more terrifying. Here, we have these terrorists who take a break from their singular focus of action to demonstrate their raw power and will, and they do it in a way that ends up being, I think, a, a distraction for the sake of a fabricated you know, bit of technology that you know, can't happen in real life. And that I think is, makes it less terrifying. As soon as you think that could never happen, I'm no longer scared myself. And, and I think that's a, that's the problem with the moment and why it doesn't work for me. And, and it's a central question. I think when you're, you know, when you're looking at, you know, making a scary moment on film, you know, at what point does taking the audience out of the realm of reality and forcing them to, you know, uh, suspend their disbelief for something that would have been a largely easy choice to make to to keep them in the reality of the film and keep them really scared? At what point is that not serve the the ultimate goal of the film? And in this, that sequence, I think, fails. Um, but but I want to get back to, you know, your your point on um, uh, the fantastic William Sadler uh, doing his naked Tai Chi. I think that's the more important um, sort of approach to this film <laughs> is naked Tai Chi. Yeah, you got to You got to appreciate uh, any film that uh, that that kicks off with that. <laughs> he he looks great. William Sadler. Kudos to him for being in great shape. But I got to ask. And I every time I watch this movie, I have the same question. Where's his junk, Andy? I know you have this strategy when I bring up subjects like this to just be real quiet because you think it's real important that everybody knows that these are the things I think about and you take no part in it. I get that. It's okay. I don't think I'm alone in wondering where William Sadler's junk is. Do they tape it up? <laughs> because there is a sequence in here where he does like a uh, a half squat spread leg thing in front of the mirror and you should be able to see junk between his legs and there's nothing nothing he's like cannon barbie he is nothing and i i'm always thinking what do they do mechanically to hide the junk as a as a professional in uh the making of films i'd like you to address that i think it's just angles angles and lighting <laughs> uh, and i'm i don't know i that's a tough angle to hide um <laughs> he's great i don't like how he does the the quick draw mcgraw with the television remote i don't believe that would have i don't believe that would have happened there are some elements that they use to heighten the suspense in the beginning to, to kind of amp the amp that tension and it's it's a little silly you know yeah, that's it's, not it's one like of them that deflates <laughs> a little bit of the uh the moment the little quick draw remote pew turn that tv off right <laughs> it's just terrible <laughs> Do we, so can we talk about the luggage carousel? This is this is a thing, and it's not the carousel. This is the 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 conveyors, right? The whole giant conveyor system that is you know that's in the back of the it's behind the scenes of the airport. And I remember, so this came out in '90. I can't. It was a couple of years later that Denver International Airport opened, and part of the big news of DIA 
was that they had a completely automated luggage system that that you put luggage the the person at the the carrier counter would drop your luggage onto the the conveyor belt and it would just show up at the plane like magic transporter no one else would need to touch it they showed all these great behind the scenes videos the promotional things that hit the news about luggage that drops in all these little buckets and and in fact truly that you could really send luggage and it would never touch a person it would just disappear into the bowels and show up at your plane and that was how it was supposed to work ideally when it launched it was completely broken they had to bring in armies of people to essentially set up a second luggage handling system because they couldn't get the robots to work so here we are years a couple of years before that and we are expected to believe when mclean goes behind the scenes into the luggage area where luggage is on all these like multi-storied conveyors uh, that, in fact, there are no humans in this entire cavernous place, with the exception of terrorists who are rigging something to a something and the robot head squishing machines that for some reason, I mean, exist in this space to truly damage our luggage. Right. That's what the implication is. I don't care about the guy whose head gets squished. What are they doing to my luggage at this airport? Terrible things. <laughs> Again, Andy, it takes me out of the narrative. It's ridiculous. And I guess this is this is one of those things that obviously you had more issues with than I did. This is definitely a movie that requires you to uh, to let go of some of those sorts of questions and say, you know what? This is an over the top silly action movie there are going to be crazy things happening and i'm just going to roll with it if you roll with it it's it's a lot more fun if all of these things start bogging you down like where are all the people in the back what why what what is this nonsensical plane lowering thing you know all these different things that that are pretty silly i mean this was not a, a movie that air traffic controllers and you know people who run ran planes none of them liked it because of how silly all of this was but in context of the just the, the the fun of watching the movie, if you can let go of that, then it's enjoyable. If you can't, then yeah, it's gonna everything is gonna end up just piling on as problem after problem. So what you're saying is you don't, in fact, have a defense for the luggage carrying place. <laughs> no, I because you're right. I, mean, I there, have not let there go. There should enough. be people back there, <laughs> um, but it's just one of those things where I'm just like, you know what? It's not something that's ever bugged me. I just don't care that much. Okay, okay. Then what is a thing that you want to talk about? Because all these things that are on my list are things that bug me. If if there are things that bug me, let's talk about maybe just you know just some of the uh, the scripting and stuff. I mean, this is one I had a lot more issues with. We already talked about John McClane and how they 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 treated McClane as far as we we both had a harder time really liking him. I found him so much more antagonistic. He meets this janitor Marvin, who is a very strange character anyway. I don't really like Marvin. The janitor, um, who seems to be always, you know, I don't yeah. know, he just changes a lot through the film. It's very weird. I couldn't figure out what they wanted to do with Marvin. I, like, was he supposed to be the ghost that haunts the underbelly of the airport? Was he? I was just. A, you're right. It was just weird. He goes from being like just kind of like seeing this. He seems like oh, he's just kind of that guy that everyone's forgotten who's down there who's going to help John. But then John is like he's so antagonistic with him. At one point, he's just like. I can't remember what it was, maybe about the walkie talkies, just like, how about like, you, you let me have it or something? And he's just like, how about I let you live? Yeah. And I'm like, 
why does he say that? Like this guy has been doing nothing but kind of helping him. And here he is just like, what, like, where did that come from? It was so, and then the guy's like, oh, this is a guy who knows how to negotiate or whatever. It's just like, it's so weird. And then Marvin later is just like, oh, it's just like Iwo Jima. And I, I don't know. It's just like, I, I feel like they never really, or maybe they, they had, he had been going through rewrites as the script was happening. And it seemed like his character was like four or five different people all kind of mushed together. Or yes, totally. But at this point, Marvin and John McClane are that character mushed together, right? You're right. How about I let you live? So John McClane, this charming ne'er-do-well of a police detective who is always stuck in the wrong place at the wrong time, uh, is now um, a murderer. That Like straight up, I'm going to kill a guy for a $5 walkie-talkie. So there are issues like that. And also just like the way that they wrote McLean, like the last movie we talked about how great Bruce Willis was at doing his monologuing. Like he talks to himself so well. In this film, I felt like he was really struggling with it. And I think it's just the, the, the lines that the writers came up with. It's just like it didn't flow very well. And anytime anyone was speaking, whether it's one of the the flight attendants or one of the air traffic controllers or whatever. Like, I just really felt like a lot of the dialogue was a lot more clunky. Like people just did not have as easy a time getting it out of their mouths. I don't know if that really falls to just the script or if it also is Rennie Harlan's direction, but it was definitely more of a struggle with this one than the, than the previous one. I think we've talked about it once in another context, which is that, you know, having a non-native English speaker um, directing, uh, sometimes directing um, native English speakers speaking English in weird contexts, like it, it really felt to me like they he just didn't have an ear for what sounded normal and natural uh, in English. Like maybe in Finnish, this would have sounded much better. Um, you know, I, I can't stand the, uh, you know, insurance companies start going bankrupt, you know, Al Powell, uh, his line talking on the phone. It's just, it, it sounds unnatural. But see some of that, I, I think that, yeah, I, I completely agree with you is that, that some of that, it could be how Rennie Harlan was directing it and getting these performances from the actors. But also I think it's, it's the writers saying, Hey, let's do more of what we did last time and really amp it up. And trying to kick things up a level, like giving Al terrible lines like that or making him eating Twinkies all the time. It's like, ugh, God, really? Uh, and just so much. And, and just like Art Evans playing Barnes, who is this this guy in the air traffic control who starts helping kind of, I don't know if it's really secretively, but he kind of starts helping uh, McLean and they kind of work together. Um, but man, he, I really struggled with his performance as this guy who's kind of helping him. And I don't know if it's him as an actor or if it was just the writing or the directing or what, but it's just like everything that he did in the film, I just really struggled with. I am right with you. And I couldn't quite put my finger on why, uh, because, yeah. you know, I've seen art in other stuff. I like art. I think he's a, a fine and talented actor. Stuff didn't sound right coming out of his mouth. And not just the fact that a lot of his sort of biggest beats were ADR and, and just didn't didn't come off right. It's strange because there are performances that hold up, I think, very well. I think Bonnie Bedelia, uh, as small of a role as she has, is delightful. And I actually find her uh, interchange with, um, you know, Thornburg, William Atherton, uh, to be quite funny and interesting and and strong. And I, I really enjoy what goes on up in that plane. Uh, every time I find myself engaged and chuckling and, and it's it's great. Um 
so and, and Fred Thompson as Trudeau and sort of in charge of air traffic control. I, I think he is equally I think I, I don't have any problem with his performance, his delivery. Everything does sound natural. Well, he's just one of those guys who carries carries weight every time. Yeah, he's talk about gravitas. Anything. I mean, he's just, uh, you know, he's just perfect to play somebody like this who always looks serious. I mean, I can imagine when he was working as a senator, you know, uh, being very intimidated by anything he said because he just carries so much weight in yeah. everything he says. He's a really interesting guy. Um, I didn't have as much problem with the terrorists, and maybe that's just because largely they don't talk, but I did love seeing, you know, John Leguizamo, Robert Patrick, Vondi Curtis Hall, Mark Boone Jr. all popping up as uh, terrorists in here in minor roles very early in their careers. I thought that was kind of uh, fun to see. I did, too. This was such a wonderful, like, who's who of bad guys throughout cinema history. <laughs> right. you know, they're all in here. Uh, I, I thought that was that was great. Although, can we talk about the Skywalk? What is going on there? I, th- this was, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a fun sequence by, uh, you know, by action, uh, you know, action sequence, uh, expectations. We get everything we want, but yeah, it's like, okay, why are the bad guys out here painting and doing construction and stuff? Like it's some disguise they have, but why, like, why are they wasting their time doing that? Just waiting for these people to come out there eventually. Uh, it, it was so silly like when you look at it it's like it makes zero sense it it really does like why do they take three guys armed and put them so far away i know i mean the 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 structure seems to be that we want to put them there because we're saying that the terrorists have thought of everything they've thought of this one major pathway to um you know this other antenna we need to stop them there uh, and sort of head them off at the pass. Uh, and yet it, it just feels like, why didn't they just take out that antenna? You know, why do they which need they to waste, do anyway, <laughs> which they do anyway? Why don't, why do they need to stage three guys painting? <laughs> like, right. why, why do they need to pretend? Because the whole section is closed off anyway. No pedestrians are going there. Why do they have to, to dress them up? Yeah. In in painter's garb. I think it's just it ends up being kind of silly. I think Colonel Stewart just he didn't have anything else for those guys to do. Yeah. And just like, I need you doing something. Now go these paint are, the these are not the not our best thugs. <laughs> We're gonna put them right. in the painting spots. But but Ugh. we do get Robert Patrick's, you know, sitting ducks. That's right. Uh a line which is always always great. We certainly uh he's he's a good goon. <laughs> He's a very good goon. He does a good job with it. Yes, yeah. we do have. So it's not. It's not in this sequence. We do have. You know, and the way that sequence ends, um, it it's it's the moving sidewalk bit where McLean is trapped under debris and he has to turn the sidewalk on with the pipe in order to the the race for for the, for the gun to get the gun to come to him so that he can shoot the goon who's running at him. Um, that sounded which, like you. It sounded like you were setting up a riddle. To do it the does, thing, to does. pull the thing, to make this thing. <laughs> <laughs> and into the woods we go. Uh, into the, ja- the house that Jack built. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and, and so it's good. It, it's a it's a great, uh, I don't know, it's a great action beat. I always think that's, I, I've always thought that that was a, a tight action beat. There are some other pretty gooey uh, offings, uh, in particular the ice pick. Goodness. Or icicle. Or the icicle, yeah. That's that's uh, that's just, yeah, it's it's bloody, it's gory, it's... You know, it's it's funny. Rennie Harlan actually says, um, I think I was in my bloody period at this point in my filmmaking career, <laughs> which I think says a lot about uh, what he was doing here. But yes, that is just so uh, 
over the top. And that, that was actually one of the things aside from the, the, uh, the, the terrorists crashing the plane, which caused quite a bit of controversy with him and the studio, as far as the studio, you know, telling him, no, he couldn't do that. They wanted it to be an empty cargo plane. He said it needed to be a plane full of people for the gravitas and the, um, they let a uh, test audience decide and the test audience was okay with it. Uh, the icicle to the eye was another thing that the studio was really um, hesitant about. They thought it was going way too far, having him take out this terrorist with an icicle to the eyeball. Um, but again, test audiences watched it and as, as you know, gross as they thought it was, they were okay with it. And so it stayed. It's just, I, I think it just it goes to, you know, show when you start kind of creating these bigger, bigger, action movies people want bigger things and audiences end up being okay with it as as gory as it is yeah i yeah i guess so I, you know and i go back to you know film your comment around sort of the the changing dynamic of sort of cultural expectations in film and and was this you know was this yet another milestone on the way to accepting more violence in different kinds of action movies like in action movies not straight up horror movies like you don't know what you're going to expect yeah the 80 the 80s action movies into the 90s i mean they definitely were amping it up and like so many genres and we talk about it all the time with the superhero genres you start getting tired with some of the expectations that you have and so they start pulling in different types of of genres or subgenres into a genre to kind of modify it. And yes, certainly, especially coming from Rennie Harlan, who brought us Nightmare on Elm Street part four. Um, and uh, I know there's another horror film before, um, before he got to this, I think it was called prison um, doing a, a, a horror, you know, moment like that. I think certainly um, I guess it's, it's one of those things that you could say, okay, he's, he's doing something different for the action genre that, uh, nowadays may not be as, uh, uh, shocking. The stunts were great. Uh, it was, it's very cool to see these, some of these action stunts. Yeah. There's some, there's some really fun stuff. I mean, this is the era when, you know, before all the CG and everything and seeing the guy, you know, the stuntman jumping out of a, an actual helicopter, onto the actual wing of a 747. I mean, it's, you know, there's something gripping about that. You know, yeah. these are people doing something that's, you know, pretty scary. And, and, uh, I, I think that it speaks a lot to what people kind of the, just the level of effort they were putting into making these movies. I have to say, and I know what you're going to say to this one. I just need to let it go. But the fight is awesome on the wing of the plane. I love that they're throwing each other around on this plane. And then he falls off, uh, McLean does, and he grabs the fuel release handle. And as he falls off, the fuel is showering down on the runway. And the first thing I think of is, isn't he going to be covered in jet fuel? And the second thing I think of is, I'm really dying to know what would happen if he really lit up a Zippo in his jet fuel covered hand and dropped it into the 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 fuel uh trail uh to blow up that 747 i don't i'm not convinced that it's going to work that way even though i do like the explosion <laughs> there you go yes. see i'm i'm opening my heart to uh the exuberance of fantasy it's it, it is totally nonsensical but again this movie celebrates kind of that over the top actionness of the 80s if uh, you know i can just call it that and it, I, I, I don't know. I guess I just don't have issues with it. I think it's as silly as everything else in the movie. Um, you know, but, but <laughs> it lives up to itself. That's great. 
glowing praise. (laughs) Well, I'm not saying it's a great movie. I'm just saying it does well what it's setting out to do. Yes. All right. I guess that's I guess that's a different point. You're right. I'll give it to you. Now, I I do want to talk to you about one point that that does come up with with that bit that you just brought up, the final explosion. Now, we have set up Colonel Stewart as the as the the, the main antagonist of our story here. Um, we don't get uh, when McLean blows up the plane, he takes out Stewart and Esperanza and all of the goons. The only person he directly takes out, I guess you could say, is is Grant, who gets knocked off the wing and sucked through the uh, the engine, which is a pretty kind of horrific. Back to Rennie Hartlin and his bloody phase. Um, it's it's a, a, a you know a great way to take out a villain, a baddie in a movie. But do you feel disappointed at all that uh, considering Stewart is kind of the big bad of the film, that we don't get a a moment where McLean and Stewart actually are the two who kind of duke it out is it is it okay that it's just this big plane explosion that kills everybody you know i've always been okay with it and it it didn't start to bother me until you brought it up this question that maybe i should be bothered it does it bother you <laughs> no i i don't think it does but it was just something i was wondering because i'm like you know normally you you want your antagonist um and your protagonist to kind of have that big last moment and they do i mean you know but at the same time i'm just like well okay all he does is blow up the plane he's also killing esperanza did it would it have been more powerful if stewart was the one and that's i guess where my head was would have been better if stewart was the one who got sucked through the engine and and then grant knocked him off the wing and then he blew up grant and esperanza or is it nice having stewart cuz he's kind of the big bad be the last one who gets blown up I don't yeah, know if I, I really know. Actually, I I don't th- I I don't yeah I certainly don't know. But I I feel like if we'd seen like getting sucked into the engine of the plane is is gratuitous, uh, it's gross, but it's not satisfying, right? It's not satisfying in the same way. I like the idea that it, it's not just Stuart getting blown up in the plane; it's the entire bouquet of baddies that are all in that plane, and so. This is McLean making actually a bigger statement by taking care of everyone that was uh, troubling the airport and all at once in a giant ball of flame. I think that's that's more grandiose. Well, you're right. And plus, you get the big yippee-ki-yay line yeah, yep, along yep. with it, which does give you that big ac- action beat of satisfaction which that you was for. super satisfying, right? I mean, that's the, I really loved hearing that line. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely become as part of watching a movie about John McClane as anything else. Yeah, it's just it's it's a critical element that you have to have now. Yes, absolutely. So much so that by the time you get to the fifth one, it's it's a poster tagline. Yippee-ki-yay, Mother Russia. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I uh, can't wait for that one. All right. All right. Uh, so I, I do have to say, though, uh, okay, so he blows the plane up and then you've got uh, the, the plane and its explosion trail leaves the it turns. Uh, basically, it's a light. So all the planes can land. Then you get this music that starts playing. And I'm just like, oh, what is this awful music? And I've never, ever liked it. And then I finally uh, listening to Rennie Harlan, uh, you know, who's very proud of his country, Finland. And I say I say all this. Now knowing that this music is is not Michael Kamen's score, but it's actually a piece called Finlandia by John Sibelius, and Harlan wanted it to be incorporated throughout the score. And here we get the big climactic bit of the music as all the planes come in and land. 
I'm not saying that the music itself is bad. Everybody from Finland, cool your jets. I think it's great. <laughs> but I, as, as far as the music coming in and all the planes landing, it just feels all of a sudden like really like this this oddly like patriotic march sort of thing like here we come da, da, da. and it just all of a sudden feels so inappropriate and it just it always strikes me as strange music to to hit at that moment that's i think that's really funny cuz it is a patriotic march like they're literally right. patriotically marching the planes back into the <laughs> runway <laughs> and they're doing that's uh, that was one of the first you know you read all of the commentary on this film and it always comes back to this that if you tried to stack so many planes on the same runway there would be massive devastation <laughs> there's no way they could clear the runway fast enough uh, so i always find that really funny because i in my head i play that out to all these toy planes crashing into <laughs> One another one after another to this giant Finlandia, you know, patriotic music. It is it, it's sort of a, a trope of Harlan's to always include something Finn uh, in his films. Most of the time you'll see Finlandia vodka, which I don't believe you see in this movie. I didn't notice it. Um, I, I didn't either. I wasn't looking all that closely because I, I didn't figure that out until after I watched the movie. But you do see you see it in things like Deep Blue Sea and Driven and Long Kiss and Cutthroat Island. You get the Finnish flags everywhere. Uh, you So you get Finnish flags, the bottle of Finlandia or this song. In Ford Fairlane, you do get the Finlandia vodka, but it was lost to the ages because of Pan and Scan uh, for many years uh, before it was re-released, it was cut. It, it's an empty bottle on the floor of Fairlane's apartment, and the pan and scan cut it out. Uh, and so now in re-release, if you watch Ford Fairlane, you'll see the Finlandia bottle on the, the floor of his apartment. The real Finally. Nod, yes. Yeah, <laughs> finally. The well-deserved, finally. The real <laughs> nod to Finland, however, in that particular movie is not a song. It is not a flag. It's not even booze. It is, in fact, uh, Katja Kok. Karkainen, who was a Karkainen, who was a Finnish Playboy bunny in a weird sex scene, uh, and she is actually the nod to his home country, Finland, in that movie, which I find weirdly funny. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to make of that. Hail Finland! Hail Finland! It's just one last little note about the ending. Uh, it's interesting to note the very last shot of this film. It was actually a big deal at the time because this was actually a matte painting that they end on of all of the planes parked on the runway. And then what they did, they shot individual groups of people. And then this is the first time that they actually digitally composited them onto a, a matte painting. Um, so it was actually, if you look at it, because I was watching it, I'm like, God, it just looks, it always looks kind of funky. Everything else at the ending looks great. And then you get to this last shot and I'm like, it never looks real, but the people are moving and everything. That's what it was. Digitally composited people on a matte painting. <laughs> That's awesome. I See, don't know Die how Hard. often they, they, I don't know how often they did that after this, because soon after this, you get to just, you know, digital uh, paintings, digital backgrounds. So yeah, I'm right. curious how, how often that ended up getting used. Can we talk about the central mechanic around the blanks versus the bullets? Oh yes. The blue versus the red guns. Blue versus red. I have always found it a little bit ri ridiculous that blue versus red was a little bit too telegraphed uh, of what they were going for, right? That the red were the live rounds and the blue were the blanks. And I, I figured it out. I remember figuring it out, uh, you know, in my first viewing of the movie so very early, it felt like such a pedestrian telegraph of what they were of their central military ruse. 
that it it gave it away too early for me. And I don't want to say like I don't want to say that I'm I'm that means I must be really really good at figuring out things like this. It just felt really sort of like a juvenile play. Well, yeah, and I don't think it's very. Um, it's always come across as pretty obvious to me, and it does make me wonder if they were intentionally being obvious with it, yeah, uh, or if it was just something where um, they just didn't do it very effectively because people caught on to it really easily. It's not a big surprise, I guess, you know. So I don't know. It's just it's one of those things where I'm like, it, it's not a mechanic that works very well for me. The whole thing is only to set up these army people who are actually bad so that this whole firefight between the two of them can be can be faked but again if you go into the mechanics of all that it's all it all seems really bad anyway because these army guys are bringing some other non-army guys to the fight too like the cops and mclean and other people who have real weapons so i'm like you know (laughs) that's right it, it just seems it just seems not very smart on their part. Like if they're going to actually go about doing this, they should have had everybody stay behind and gone off and pretended to have a firefight or something, you know, <laughs> That's right. but you know, it goes to the back bad guy logic. None of it is very logical uh, throughout this film, um, which I, I think they wanted to find a way to amp up some of the, 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 um, uh, the logistics with the various levels of, authority in the first film where you had al you had his supervisor you had the fbi guys they all kind of had a different reaction to mclean and everything going on and i felt like the writers were trying to do the same thing here where we had uh lorenzo we had the the um barnes we had trudeau and the rest of the airport people then we had the army guys and and all these different levels but now they're like well but what if we make some of them bad this time and all of that just seemed like they were just going too far. Like I, I never really, the whole thing with the army guys just never sits that well with me. It always feels like one, one beat too far in, in this level of bad guys. And that falls to the whole red, blue gun thing. It just, it ends up being a silly element that maybe wasn't necessary. Totally agree. Okay. So Harlan was just coming off of nightmare on Elm street, uh, number four. He did Nightmare on Elm Street 4. He actually started Alien 3, which is, I think, quite funny, uh, considering <laughs> the history of that film. Obviously, it all fell apart. He ended up jumping onto Ford Fairlane, and uh, who uh, a film that Joel Silver was also producing. Um, Joel liked him and said, hey, do you want to do the sequel to Die Hard that we're going to be doing? Um, Bruce came over and met him. Everything was hunky-dory, and they said, great. The only challenge with all of this was that uh, for production to um, the production for Die Hard 2 was scheduled to start as soon as Ford Fairlane wrapped. And so he had to figure out a plan to uh, do the post for Ford Fairlane after Die Hard 2 finished. He figured he would just do it all at the same time. But because both of them were hit, were scheduled to be summer releases in 1990, he basically, all, all the post had to be happening while he was shooting Die Hard 2 um, because he had to get his first cut of Die Hard 2 ready to screen to the studio a couple like a week or something after the shoot wrapped and so so pretty much he was shooting die hard 2 and he had all of his editors cutting ford fairlane and footage for die hard 2 as it came in so that everything could get uh going it was crazy and uh, it all worked out and and this opened i think ford fairlane opened a week after uh in the summer of 1990 
Just a crazy schedule, though. That's bananas. And also, terrible, terrible weather for shooting anyway. It was a very, very warm winter, and it was very frustrating for them because this was a film where they were, you know, the whole thing was supposed to be taking place during a snowstorm. And so kind of like The Revenant, when Leonardo DiCaprio and and, uh, company had to, uh, you know, they were getting poor snow and they had to chase the snow all the way down to Argentina to finish filming that movie. That's right. That's right. This was one where they kept having to go from place to place trying to find snow. And like they they came out to, they, they did a lot of the interiors in LA, obviously, but like the exteriors, they filmed some in Denver, like all the church exteriors, the airport and runway exteriors were Denver. But when they got out to the church uh, to film there, there was no snow. And so they had to cover the whole thing with snow and make it all snow. And then, of course, when it came time for the big action sequence, they actually had the biggest snowstorm to hit Denver in 30 years. And there was so much snow falling the night they were supposed to be filming that they couldn't even see like a few feet in front of their face. So they had to cancel it and wait one night. Luckily, the next night ended up being okay. But he said it was just crazy. And and for the scene when McLean is crawling out of the hole on the runway to go uh, catch Esperanza's plane, that sequence, uh, if you if you look at all the different locations that they they filmed that whole sequence on, it was over 10 different locations. It was like Michigan and San Francisco and L.A. and Denver and I think Spokane. It's like they were all over the place trying to chase the snow so that they could make this movie work, which is just hilarious that, uh, that it, it was so hard. And then, of course, you get to the final scene when the planes have landed and John and Holly are, are reuniting on the runway. That was filmed at Stapleton Airport, which I guess audiences might not know. It was an, it was the big Denver airport that actually had just closed down before um, uh, Denver International Airport opened. And so that's why they went and filmed this there. And when they were filming that scene at night, it was so cold. It wasn't snowing, but it, the weather was so cold that the film was actually freezing inside the cameras. So they had heaters everywhere to try warming up the place. And then they had, they were, they were spraying potato flakes everywhere to make it look like a snowstorm. And Rennie Harlan said the whole place just smelled like uh, mashed potatoes because it was like this wet mashed potato mixture all over you. And it was just everywhere. It's just, (laughs) it's crazy thinking of that, you know, trying to make a movie with snow like this and how complicated it was back then. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's it's actually really funny. In the opening sequence, you, you get this. He's outside in the snow uh, in front of Stapleton, and then he goes inside and he's shaking snow off his jacket. And you can see the sunny day through the sliding glass doors behind him <laughs> as they've changed airports. It's very funny. Um, very convoluted uh, production. Uh, let's jump into our deep scene drive briefly. Let's do it. This is uh, actually one of uh, Mr. Harlan's very favorite scenes in the movie. Uh, we're starting right about an hour 15 uh, into the film through hour 19. It's the scene where es- where uh, Esperanza uh, stops the plane uh, and uh, is accosted by McLean. And then uh, John McClane gets trapped by the terrorists who come to kept, to to take Esperanza away, whisk him away to freedom. And uh, we have a lot of hand grenades. Oh yes, we do. Oh, Good old do military funerals. Why is this? Uh, why is this a central uh, uh, great scene that represents this movie? And and why is it uh, Rennie Harlan's favorite scene? I think we picked this scene because it is a great uh, representation of what Rennie Harlan brings to a movie like this. Just really over the top action is really what we get here. It's it's 
And, and Rennie Harlan really liked the scene because it, he thought it was just a fun challenge of, okay, you put your hero into this, this really frustrating and difficult situation. How are you going to get him out? And it's, it's one of the most iconic images from the scene and from the film. And I, you could almost say from the franchise, it is a very iconic shot. And it's when, when McLean, um, you know, they, they trap him in the cabin of this, of this uh, plane that Esperanza has just landed. And then they all start, start tossing in hand grenades that obviously have very long timers before they go off. And then McLean, his only way out, he, he straps himself into the, uh, the, the pilot seat, which happens to have an ejector seat and he ejects himself out. And then you have that fantastic shot from, you know, like a hundred feet in the air looking down as, as McLean in the ejector seat comes flying right up to the camera and the explosion, explosion goes off underneath him. It's over the top, ridiculous and very fun in a diehard movie. It is. It's totally ridiculous. It's a giant fireball uh, that uh, is, thanks to our friends at uh, the Internet Movie Firearms Database, uh, uh, actually back up the thing that has always bugged me. The M26 grenades that they use in these scenes have seven seconds at the long end, seven second delay <laughs> before they blow up. And uh, they these guys throw what feels like 50 grenades <laughs> in the air <laughs> over the course of about 30 seconds uh, and uh, before the first they start to blow up but uh he would have been long toast just in the amount of time it takes him to get into the seat that said andy this is a sequence that i let go it is so over the top that i can go ahead and be uh and, and enjoy with the glee of my inner teenager because uh it, you're right it's it's insane, but the look on his face on willis's face is priceless it's it's iconic it is a great uh, a great sequence uh, so I'm I am in favor of this one. All right, that's what I was wanting to hear. Yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, scene. It's not shot um, as far as like the camera work and everything. Oliver Wood is the cinematographer here. He came over from Ford Fairlane along with a lot of other people. Um, it's it's pretty you know pretty clean camera work. Nothing we don't have shaky cam. It's it, you know that really hadn't started yet. It's very kind of you know the camera's steady little moves as as characters move like it kind of dictated by characters except for one fantastic emotionally telegraphing move when esperanza opens the door and says freedom you have this fantastic move where the camera just just basically flies right up into his face as he says freedom which leads to that cut of john mcclain popping in and hitting him in the face and going not yet <laughs> which it's it's so silly it's so over the top john mcclain it works really well but I just that that's a great camera move that that really kind of gives you that lead in that you need for that uh, comic interjection. Totally. And there are a couple of good camera just angles and placements, you know, when sure. we have the the soldier shooting at the uh, at the the door to the pilot's cabin. Right. I mean, that's a, a very cool shot from way back in the in the top hangar of this thing uh, on the ground. And it looks really cool. Um, even if you you really want to say to that guy, it's not opening, man. Save your save your ammo. Why are people? Why isn't your Esperanza dying with the ricochet bullets showering down upon him? But it's a very cool shot. So there are some things you know, sort of architecturally in the film that that really work. It's got some fun effects, and I think you know the the model work here. You know this plane, which was really kind of all this plywood thing that they had fabricated. 
it looks great. I think that uh, what ILM did as far as the uh, the blue screen work with John McClane kind of going up in the seat, up to the you know uh, up to the camera basically, and then the the great uh, miniature explosion work that they had going on behind him. I think they did a very effective job. And and sure, throughout this film, you can see when there's some of that blue screen or the the rear screen or or front screen projection work that you have. You can kind of tell it's an old enough film where some of that is pretty obvious. But I think it's still effective. I don't really have an issue with it. We had a problem with um, a one of the cuts in Die Hard 1 where there was some controversy controversy about the the sort of clarity of the edit where it looks like uh it is in fact um uh mclean shooting at al powell uh because we're missing a shot and actually if you if you look at it it is you know much more clearly um the terrorists up on a different floor shooting at the car uh and and it's just unclear uh this film where this film was edited by Stuart Baird and Robert Ferretti and I wonder is are there any of those issues in this in this sequence is it is it clear uh I I know there's a question around you know how do the terrorists know McLean is he is in the plane is he do we have a clear sense of where he's positioned because they show up and just start shooting at the plane where's Esperanza how do they know they're not shooting at him yeah, there were definitely some some editing moments like that. Like, how did they like they just show up and start shooting? I mean, he wasn't standing in the doorway. Um, were they far enough away, but close enough where they could see McLean running up to the plane? What was the logic for them arriving and just opening fire? I mean, they for all intents and purposes, they were going to this plane expecting Esperanza to be there. So it was very strange for them to show up and start shooting. Yeah, that was I, I felt some poor editing. Because we never have a sense of place for them. Like once the shooting starts, then they get close. But we don't know where they are when they start shooting. Right, exactly. And likewise with the grenades. I mean, that the suspense there is drawn out to almost a point of absurdity. Um, you know, and, and you don't really, I mean, they said that, okay, we've got three, three each, three per guy or whatever he says. So, okay, nine grenades. That's how many they're going to throw in. But it does feel like that's happening forever. Yeah, it, it's happening forever, and the grenades just sit there. Uh, and every grenade makes it into the cabin. I would have been the guy bouncing grenades off of the hull of the of the plane. Well, you weren't military trained by Colonel Stewart. I mean, that's <laughs> that is a fair point, but still, that's I know. That, I, that's, uh, that's quite a lob to get it through those. Get every one of your grenades into the. I'm just saying. I hear you. I agree. It's all. It's all a stretch. It is. You know what I, I love about the this sequence also? Wow. Um, Michael Kamen's music plays uh, pretty nicely through the duration. And it just, it feels very diehard. The music that he wrote, um, I mean, he used a lot of his themes from the first film and everything, but it just has a great feel. Uh, this sequence, I think the music is is just spot on exactly what it needs to be. But I love that right before Esperanza exits the plane, um, as he's kind of looking around the interior of the plane, there's some sleigh bells in the music. I love that little nod to the sleigh bells again, which I, I'm starting to think might be a hint of uh, that Cayman was using as kind of a, a leitmotif almost for McLean as like a hint that McLean is present. He's nearby. I, I loved that little nod that we had. I, I even felt like there were little cadences of Ode to Joy uh, in here. Bum, 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 dum, ring a ling a ling a ling a ling yeah, dun right, dun right. dun! Like I feel like he was bringing back more than just the sleigh bells, even as a as, as McLean's 
um, as McLean's theme. I, I really like it, and I think Kamen is is at his best when he's doing these kinds of integrations. They're very clever musically. Absolutely, no, I, I really think that he does a great job here. One one last thing before we uh, move past this uh, our deep scene dive. I do have to say um, it's a frustrating moment to end this sequence on because it, it again, highlights the terrible comedy, or I guess I, I should say the struggle with writing McLean that Stephen E. D'Souza and Doug Richardson seemed to be having this go around. You get him landing his uh, parachute in the snow, and then you get just an awful ADR line. Where's the bleeping door? It's like, oh, really? That's what we're going to end this scene on? Is this stupid line? Like, oh, that was terrible. It was it was frustrating to, to kind of have a fun sequence end on such a terrible line. It should be a, it needed a stinger, wah, wah, or a car horn. Yeah, exactly. Auga. <laughs> yeah, just terrible. Other uh, cast and crew highlights as we do a little bit of rapid fire here. The Thing, as you mentioned, was written by or adapted by uh, Stephen Souza and Doug Richardson based on the Walter Rager book, 58 Minutes, as we have talked about. It's one of those situations where I uh, I wonder if 58 Minutes would have just been a better film if it were adapted straight from the book without having been shoehorned into uh, the Die Hard franchise. That being said, I think that they still have enough fun with it, even if it was a little more frustrating um, with some of the ways that they chose to um, uh, take it direction wise. You know, I will say something that also I think is funny is Rennie Harlan listening to his director's commentary on this. He actually says uh, like he had forgotten how much swearing was in this film and he's just like, man, I don't know if I like he, he's like, I felt like this was really something of the time where people felt like we needed to make it harder. And so we put a lot more swearing in it. He says, I would never do that now. Like unless there was a character motivation to have that much swearing, there's no reason I would have done it. And that's something I really noticed with this It's like God, they are swearing like even the guy uh, like the the co-pilot when he says, oh, they're not the beacon, the certain beacon that they is supposed to be beeping. Yeah. And he says it's talking like he he drops an F-bomb in there. And I'm like, why is he all of a sudden swearing? Like it just <laughs> right. is so out of character for some of these people. It just but it felt so written. And I think that's that is one of my biggest gripes with this. As fun as the movie is, I think that it, it feels like they were it was forced writing often. Yeah, I, I struggled with it. I don't know what to say about it because I, I'm tempted to say this is a sign of Rennie Harlan and his, and his maturity as a director. Um, but <laughs> I don't know, know if that's, that's necessarily uh, an apt. Considering uh, this film is the highest ranked film of his yeah. over at IMDb, I mean, it, he's just you know, kind of gone downhill, you could say, from yeah. 1990. Um, yeah, I don't know if. I don't know. I, I struggle with Rennie Harlan. I think that he can be a really fun director. Um, I mean, I, I absolutely love uh, The Long Kiss Goodnight, which we've talked about on the show. But boy, I, yeah. I, I feel like he's really struggled with his career and he's made a lot of stinkers. I mean, 19 movies, his IMDb average is 5.7 out of 10. So uh, His average doesn't meet the IMDb six-star rule. He goes into this thing wanting to uh, kind of replicate the experience, he says, uh, of of the first movie. Uh, that's that's not a, a copy, but that it's amped up. I 
I, I'm just not convinced that that was necessarily the right strategy for this. And I, I know we're going to talk about this very subject when we come back around to the, the rest of the Die Hard series. But um, this it, it did feel like a copy, like a, a terrible, uh, you know, mimeographed copy uh, of of the first movie where you can see the soul of it. You can see kind of the, the scaffolding of it. But as you say, it's so written and um, and and you know if if the effects and things are enough to have fun with it then so be it yeah uh, but for me i struggled let's talk about uh let's talk about the uh, uh hit short film the weight we should uh, everybody should check this hit short film out shouldn't they they, sh- they really <laughs> should andy and you'll find the link in the short notes the weight is uh it, what what would you call this was this your fight your thesis project your final project it was not my thesis uh film project oh. it was a it was a film <laughs> you sound say that disappointed oh that's, <laughs> well, that's why it's so terrible keep going i'll tell you why because <laughs> no, <laughs> well it was it was a film i did it, it was uh in a 16 millimeter uh, film class where it was the non-synced sound. So it was, it was essentially we had to do a film with um, no synced audio. And so uh, it's, it's largely internal monologue from the principal character who is waiting at the airport for his girlfriend's flight to arrive and goes through uh, flights of fancy, I guess you could say, imagining what, why it's delayed. And uh, yes, I, I, will say that there is some footage from Die Hard 2 and actually some from Die Hard as well that <laughs> might have made their way into my film. So <laughs> so you you might see it. Eagle-eyed viewers might find. They just might notice. Uh, a couple of other brief notes on The Wait. Uh, the star performer in The Wait is the one and only Chad Stoops. You may remember he used to be a regular on this show. And uh, we, we love Chad. And uh, yours truly. That's you did do his final thesis project on your non-final thesis project. <laughs> uh, I was doing uh, my undergraduate degree in, in long format production uh, journalism, and I did the the making of <laughs> Andy's, Andy's movie. And both of them are in the show notes if you want to see uh, the uh, Andy's fantastic short film and the making of it. Uh, you should check out the show notes. And I just have to say shameless 25 year old plug. I know. Right. <laughs> uh, but I just have to say how like how lucky was I? I so here I'm making this this student film Stunned. and and I am uh, Denver International Airport is a brand new airport in Denver. Uh, go figure. <laughs> and and I'm like, OK, I need to film this at an airport. And so I go and talk to the airport. And they had had, so there were three concourses and I can't remember, we were in concourse A where we were filming. Whoever was going to be the main um, airline um, using uh, concourse A as kind of their, one of their home bases had pulled out. And so it was virtually an empty concourse. And they gave me this film student with no permits or anything, complete you know, freedom to film at this concourse as, as like for a whole week, spring break, we were filming there and it was crazy. Like I had, a, I had, I had like the most amazing uh, production value because I had like an entire airport concourse to film it. It was great. <laughs> that was awesome. Those were the days. Those were the days. Uh, yeah. Although we good luck trying to, to do that nowadays. Yeah. Not a, not a chance. Uh, it, that was, that was really fantastic. Uh, okay. How to do an award season, Andrew. Well, this wasn't I mean, a big this award movie, winner. <laughs> not the weight. 
<laughs> oh, right. Oh, not the way. Well, that also wasn't a big award winner, but hey. <laughs> Uh, this film had one win and one nomination. Now, the one win, I don't know if you can count it as a win. It was a BMI Film Music Award for Michael Kamen. But this is one of those awards where everybody who gets a nomination is a winner. So he won, <laughs> but so did all the other 11 nominees who also were nominated. So I don't know if that really counts. And then it was also nominated for uh, by the Japanese Academy Best Foreign Film. Way to go, Japanese Academy. <laughs> What? What? <laughs> Luckily, they did give it to Field of Dreams instead of this one. So wow, Die Hard two best foreign film. Wow, not a lot of imports to Japan. Surprising that year. Yeah. I, it sounds like uh, we know. Obviously, there are lots more uh, Die Hard movies to talk about, which we will do. But how did it do in the box office? Well, Rennie Harlan was given more than twice what John McTiernan had to play with and certainly made it bigger, bloodier, and die hardier. He, he got $70 million to make his sequel, or $128.8 million in today's dollars. Aiming for another summer success, the movie had a limited 4th of July release before hitting theaters big time on July 6th, 1990, opposite everyone's favorite TV adaptation, Jetsons the Movie. Die Hard 2 easily took the number one slot, bumping out Days of Thunder. It went on to make $117.5 million domestically and $122.5 million internationally, earning a total of $441.7 million in today's dollars, making it one of the most profitable Christmas films and almost doubling that of Die Hard. Interestingly, it was domestically eighth highest grossing for 1990, one slot behind its predecessor in 1988 and tied its predecessor as the year's third highest-grossing R-rated film domestically. I think that goes to show that 1990 was a vastly more profitable year for movies than 1988 was. The movie ended up with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $2.5 million, beating out its predecessor. It may not be as good as the first one, but it did certainly prove that Willis's McLean is a movie character people wanted more of. All right, Andy, it's time. Uh, let's rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see our list of films. Uh, but for this uh, for this film, just swipe over in your show notes. You can click on the flick chart link. It'll take you straight to this movie where you can add it to your personal flick chart account. Where do we start? Die Hard 2 or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I would say Oh Brother. Brother. Yeah. Die Hard 2 or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. I'm going to say Die Hard 2. Yeah, I'll give you that. Die Hard 2. Die Hard 2 or Gremlins. Gremlins for me. Gremlins. Christmas versus Christmas. We didn't talk about this being another Christmas film. <laughs> All right. Back to back. People always uh, you know, say Die Hard is a Christmas movie, but you never hear people saying Die Hard 2. Everyone's favorite Christmas movie. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard oh. it more just in reading up on this film. I've heard that more. People who are saying that this is the movie that they watch where they always watch the double feature. That kind yeah. of a thing. Yeah. Die Hard 2 or Star Trek 3. The Search for Spock. I'll say it's Star Trek 3, I guess. Uh, I don't know. I'm going to say Die Hard 2, actually. I'm really, really? wavering, clearly. Really? Uh, I'm wavering I was... quite a bit. It's Star Trek 3. I had I struggled with that one more than most of I know. I, I know. I did, too. You know, it's, it's all in the bottom half. Like, it's all it's all in this this well of movies that aren't quite. I, I can I can go either way. If you're feeling Die, uh, Die, Die Hard 2, it's, just, it's a more it fun movie to watch. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Die Hard 2 or Pale Rider. Pale Rider. Pale Rider. Die Hard 2 or The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, 2011, David Fincher. Uh, it'd be Die Hard 2, 2011, I mean, David Fincher. <laughs> I'd like all of them. Uh, this is Dragon Tattoo for me. It's quite an amalgam. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll say Dragon Tattoo. Die Hard 2 or It Happened One Night. 
It happened one night for me. It happened one night. Die Hard 2 or Run Lola Run. Run, run Lola, Lola run. run. Excellent. Die Hard 2 or all the way back to The Thin Man. The Thin Man. I'll go with The Thin Man. I almost wanted to take it to the mat, but it's not worth it. <laughs> so that puts Die Hard 2 at 228 out of 332 on our chart. Well, how does that stand on your personal list, Andy? My personal list, I, you know, like I said, it's not a good film, but I do have fun with it. I actually have it at 665 out of 3885, or it's about 83%. That's really high. I know. I know. That's really high. Well, it's in the 600s. Yeah, but out of the 3000s. Mine's at 697, also in the 600s. (laughs) Out of 1,000. It's at 31%. I know. I know. For uh, letterbox.com slash the next reel, I, um, I, this comes in, if, if I were to go again by the flick chart algorithm, this should be a one and a half star film for me. I'm feeling gracious, so uh, I'll toss it an extra half star um, and, and give it a two. I, I'm going to sound absurd <laughs> with my ranking. Oh, dear. Here. Oh, dear. No, it, I'm not, it's not super absurd, but I am going to give it a three. Uh, with a like, because as as many problems as I have with it, I do have an awful lot of fun. Like, I have never been bored with this movie. I've never wanted to turn it off. I will always sit and finish it. It's one of those movies. It's just bad, but it's bad and fun. So that's fair. Uh, three I have them too. and a like. So there we are. That leaves it at a two and a half and a like for the show. Yes, it does. And yes, it does. that means we're going on to next week's Die Hard 3. Die Hard with a Vengeance. Mm, Sam Jackson. Yes. Sam It'll be, a, it'll be a, a fun one to jump back into. Uh, more John McTiernan. Another one that comes to us from a story that was not a Die Hard story uh, before it was integrated into the franchise. So I'm looking forward to chatting more about that one next week. Thanks everybody for downloading the show. We sure appreciate it. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Uh, we've got a couple of one stars uh, coming to us from the fine uh, catalog of reviews, Amazon.com. Uh, would you like to go first? Would you like me to go first? What do you think? Uh, I'll kick it off here. All right. I've got a one star by a customer who says it's the second worst movie of all time. The first and third Die Hard movies are great, but this one, asterisk, 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 asterisk. I don't think they mean five stars there. No, I, I, think I don't think so either. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess because Rennie Harlan directed it. He's not my favorite director either. The series would be a whole lot better if this movie wasn't made. Wish I Ooh. could put no stars, but it won't let me. What's interesting about this review, Pete, is they don't say what is the first worst movie of all time. Uh, I don't think I'll be able to sleep tonight. I'm going to be dwelling on this for a very long time. A very long time indeed, Andy. Mm. My uh, review comes from Soylent Green, who says, One simple oversight kills this movie for me. The big issue of this movie, I wonder if they'll actually tell us what it is. Right. (laughs) (laughs) The big issue of this movie, I did enjoy it at the time it was made, since I didn't realize it, that makes it unwatchable to me is the simple idea that someone obviously forgot, which anyone residing within an hour's drive of D.C. would clearly and quickly realize. 
Dulles Airport is within a half-hour drive to what is now Reagan National Airport, and not much further to BWI in Baltimore. A simple phone call or drive to either one to warn them would have rendered our hero John pretty useless, since all they would have done is simply call the planes from either of them, and then had them divert to either one, since they were, by air, about ten minutes further from Dulles. Did someone not do their research on what nearby airports there were? They could have phoned from there to make arrangements to land in Richmond, Virginia, Norfolk Naval Air Station, Patuxent Naval Air Station, Maryland, or others. South enough where the snowstorm would not have been an issue or landed in Andrews Air Force Base or any number of other regional airports that were close enough. This simple oversight has killed this movie for me. And you know, Andy, it didn't kill the movie for me at the time. And now I think it might have. And here's why. Because they actually took care of this in the book. In the book, they went ahead and knocked out all of the major airports in the vicinity. So there was no choice, right? This was a a central thing. They knock out Newark, they knock out uh, JFK, they knock out LaGuardia, right? It's a much further trip to to go someplace else in the middle of the storm like they, they just they set that up better in this movie they didn't i didn't even think about that we should have probably caught that point the other thing that bugs me is since they were shooting at stapleton in denver where there isn't another major international airport um you know i guess you go down to colorado springs that's uh, close enough but it, it was very small um well, they have the that, base that also too. bugs me. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Air Force Base. Like there, there's a lot that can Peterson Air Force Base. Uh, I guess they could. Uh, they they had options there, but it, it's it's pretty frustrating in Baltimore. Now. They make a big deal that it's it's Washington D.C. and and that's yet well, another thing I have to get pissed off about. Again, I, my suspension of disbelief. Uh, uh, I don't have an issue with it. I think it's okay, um, but. It does beg the question, couldn't they have just written it to take place in Denver, where it would have been a little right? more of a stretch? But, right. Yeah. Oh, well. Uh, oh, well. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today.